Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, a show that explores the untold stories of Minnesota's past and present. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. Today on Mini Culture, we're headed all the way back to the year 1900, when Minneapolis was a very different place than it is now. As the mill capital of the world, Minneapolis was packed to the brim with seasonal workers, thriving brothels, and scheming card sharks. But to Mayor Albert Alonzo Ames, it was just a piggy bank waiting to be smashed open. Over the course of a year and a half, Ames turned the Minneapolis Police Department into the most powerful crime ring the city had ever seen. KFAI's Tony Williams has the story. It's a summer night in 1902. You're on the night train leaving Minneapolis, headed east. Maybe you've been working as a lumberjack or a flour miller. After all, at the turn of the century, Minneapolis was the biggest milling and lumber town in the world. You had a good time in Minneapolis. It's a wild town full of brothels, saloons, and plenty of gambling. You're ready to head home, though. The city has a dark side, too, full of con men eager to relieve you of your pocketbook. Not to mention corrupt cops who prey on anyone fool enough to give them the chance. You've heard that everyone up to the mayor is crooked. Supposedly, he got indicted a few weeks ago. On your way to bed, you pass the smoking room of the sleeping car. There's only one man in there now, sitting still with an unlit cigar in his mouth. Looks to be about six feet, medium build, with a trimmed mustache over a thin line of a mouth. He looks pallid and tired, white as a sheet, like he's seen a ghost. You think little of it. Retire to your room for the evening. But the next morning, as you pass the smoking room again on the way to breakfast, you see the same man in exactly the same position, like he hasn't moved. His cigar is still unlit. You hurry along, leaving behind the nagging sensation that you've seen him before. It's not until days later, when you're safely back home in Chicago or Michigan, or maybe Indiana, that you see the photographs in the newspapers and make the connection. That ashen man was the mayor of Minneapolis, Dr. Albert Alonzo Ames, fleeing town as his empire collapsed around him. Welcome to Dr. Ames and Mr. Hyde. I'm your host, Tony Williams, and tonight I'm going to be telling you about one of the darkest interludes in Minneapolis history. In 1900, Dr. Albert Alonzo Ames was elected mayor for his fourth term, and he quickly turned the Minneapolis Police Department into the largest criminal enterprise the state had ever seen. It would only be 18 months before the whole thing fell apart, but that year and a half would make Minneapolis one of the most infamous cities of the early 20th century. In some ways, the shadow of Doc Ames still hangs over the Twin Cities today, in the debates we have about municipal power and corruption. But to understand where it all went wrong, first we have to understand the man himself. Albert Alonzo Ames was born in 1842 in Garden Prairie, Illinois, 
His parents, Alfred and Martha Ames, started out pretty poor. His father was a true self-made man. He'd worked his way up from farming to brickmaking to a seat in the state house. He graduated from medical school as young Albert was growing up and decided to move from Illinois to a new settlement called Minneapolis. Land was cheap. In the summer of 1851, the native Dakota people signed the Traverse des Sioux and Mendota treaties under extreme pressure from the U.S. government. The treaties confined indigenous people to reservations and opened up 24 million acres of land to white colonists and land speculators. The Ames family was one of the ones that took advantage of the situation to stake a claim, and Alfred became the first civilian doctor in Minneapolis. Actually, as one of the most educated men in the area, he drew up the city's incorporation documents. Minneapolis would have been a strange place for young Albert to grow up. It was rapidly expanding, growing from a small settlement to a big city. Albert graduated from Minneapolis High School and decided he wanted to be a doctor, like his dad. So he started working for his old man, learning the trade as an apprentice until he could get licensed. Albert eventually graduated from Rush Medical College, his dad's alma mater, at the age of 20 in 1862. From that point on, pretty much everyone just called him Doc. Doc had a busy year in 1862. He graduated med school in February and married a woman named Sarah Strout in April. On August 2nd, he joined the Army, and within three weeks, he went to war. Not in the South, like you might think, but in Minnesota against the Dakota people. The U.S.-Dakota War kicked off in late August, and Doc was right in the middle of it as an assistant surgeon. He actually ended up being one of the guards at the hanging of 38 Dakota prisoners in Mankato, still the largest mass execution in U.S. history. After that, his unit got deployed to the South to fight the Confederacy in the U.S. Civil War. They stayed there for the next couple years. In July 1864, Doc saw action at the Battle of Tupelo, and his superior officer got shot in the neck right next to him. His loss, Doc's gain. The young doctor got a field promotion to surgeon, a pretty high rank for someone who had just enlisted a couple years before. After the war ended, Doc came back to his medical practice and family in Minneapolis. This is where he got into politics for the first time. He got elected to the state house on a soldier's ticket. There was so much goodwill towards veterans at the time that people were electing them in droves. He finished out his term without much fanfare and decided to move to the West Coast. He might have meant to stay out there. But in 1874, he got wind that his dad's health was declining back in Minnesota. Doc, Sarah, and the kids moved back to Minneapolis to be near old Alfred, who died later that year. Okay, lots of dates, I know, but here's where the rubber meets the road. It's 1874, Doc is 32, and he's just lost his dad. He's back in Minneapolis, starting up a medical practice and getting back into politics. This is where Doc really comes into his own. He takes up his father's mantle as the community doctor of Minneapolis. He'll treat absolutely anybody, and if you're down on your luck, he'll treat you for free. He's got this glowing reputation, and his patients absolutely adore him. But something darker is emerging in him, too. 
He's super ambitious, and he's capitalizing on this goody-two-shoes image to get elected to higher and higher office. To understand this tension, I reached out to a local historian who wrote a book on Doc Ames and runs a historical true crime podcast. He's probably the guy who spent the most time in Doc's head in the last hundred years, and he was super helpful. My name is Eric Rivenis. I am the author of Dirty Doc Ames and the Scandal That Shook Minneapolis and the host and creator of the Most Notorious podcast. I asked Eric to describe Doc for me. I mean, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the perfect description for him. There were two sides to him, but there was a bridge between these two sides as well, which was his following, you know, the people that loved him the most, the disenfranchised, the working class that felt ignored by the Democratic and Republican Party in the late 19th century. They were his primary base of supporters. So some people will argue that in being this genial doctor, he also was doing it for the purpose of buying votes, <laughs> in essence, right? Right. I'm going to spare you the details, but this guy ran for office 17 times over the course of 35 years, and he only won seven of those races. In 1888, he even tried to get nominated to the vice presidency at the Democratic National Convention. It wasn't like he was particularly devoted to the party, though. Doc was a Republican who became a Democrat, who became an independent, who became a Republican. He blew with the breeze, you know, whatever was popular, whatever he thought could help get him elected. So he, you know, his political affiliation is very fuzzy, you know, and I couldn't figure out what he was after all of this <laughs> research at the end of the day. He was just self-serving more than anything else. Whatever party got him into power, he was with them. I think one of the best ways to illustrate this Mr. Hyde side of Doc is his 1886 campaign for governor. He's in his third term as the mayor of Minneapolis, where he's mostly known for being a huge supporter of the saloons and brothels in town. He gets the Democratic nomination for governor and seems to have a pretty good shot at winning. But the night before the election, the Republican Party throws a huge torchlight parade in Minneapolis, and things get messy. The parade turns from Hennepin to Washington, an area with a lot of AIM supporters. And then it gets attacked. Doc's supporters, armed with clubs, stones, and eggs, beat the tar out of a bunch of Republicans. The cops, who work for Doc, join in and start beating up Republicans too. Nobody dies, but there are dozens of injuries, some of them pretty serious. The news spreads across the state the morning of Election Day and it doesn't do Doc any favors. He ends up losing the governorship by just 2,000 votes, about a single percentage point. And Doc is absolutely furious. First, he claims that the Republicans hired thugs to attack their own parade. And then, get this, he takes the oath of office as governor, claiming he actually won the election. Eventually, he decides to give up after all. Sound familiar? And then in the aftermath, he just goes back to being mayor. Wild! Anyway, in 1889, after losing a couple more campaigns for higher office, he heads to Europe for a few months of R&R. In August, he writes this letter to his eldest son that I think is super interesting. 
Unfortunately, it's the only one of Doc's personal documents we still have. But it gives us some real insight into who this dude was behind the headlines and the scandals. Here's a quote. In order to be a general, you must have faithful soldiers, commanders, and attendants. Never ignore anyone. Kind words never cost anything except time. Frequently, a kind word or an act of courtesy does more good than thousands of dollars could do. Okay, so on one hand, sounds like a nice guy. On the other, it's pretty clear that Doc thinks of kindness as a currency, one that can buy you loyalty. It's a means to an end. My other favorite quote is near the end of the letter. It is one of the proudest boasts of my life that I have never been accused of dishonesty. I could have made a fortune, but I would not touch it at the price of dishonor. If anyone tells you that your father ever took a bribe or did a dishonorable act, you strike him, and hard, and I'll stand by you. This from a man who sicked thugs on a parade. I mean, he couldn't be more of a cartoon villain if he was tying heiresses to railroad tracks. Anyway, other than the lying, the letter is really sweet. Ames seems to have a good relationship with his family at the time. But it quickly goes downhill. The next year, he left his wife Sarah for his mistress, a woman named Harriet Bates. Sarah died a few years later, and it set off this crazy custody battle for their 12-year-old son, John. Basically, after Doc and Sarah separated, John went to live with his older sister, Effie, and Doc wanted him back. Doc and his daughter, Effie, got in this extremely public court battle. Under oath, Effie described her dad as a drunk, a misanthrope, and a physical wreck. She said his heart had turned to stone. That's a direct quote from his daughter. Effie and her husband ended up getting custody of John, but Doc's relationship with them never recovered. When Doc eventually died, years later, with more than $1,000 to his name, he left Effie and John a single dollar each. I think that pretty much sums it up. So now that we have a sense of who Doc Ames is, we can talk about one of the most important turning points in his life and in the history of the city of Minneapolis, the election of 1900. At the turn of the century, Doc is 58 years old and he's running for mayor, again. And this time, he's running as a Republican. It's a shrewd political move. The year before, the state legislature had passed an open election law, which made it so people didn't have to be a member of a political party to vote in its primary. This came at the perfect time for Doc. The Democratic mayor was running for re-election, so there was no way Doc was going to win a primary as a Democrat. But the Republicans didn't have a super strong candidate in the race yet. Equally helpful was the fact that Republican President William McKinley was favored to win re-election. Doc hoped that he could ride his coattails back into the mayor's office. So Doc convinced his working-class supporters to switch parties and vote for him in the Republican primary instead. When some of the local papers called him out for this political bait-and-switch, he went on this wild rant at a Republican Party meeting. I know the history of some of the editors. I might tonight give you the private history of some of them, but I won't. Damn them, I'll meet them, and I'll do it on the platform, not in a dirty, stinking article. I'll meet them, and I'll beat them, and I'll be elected over all of them, over all they write in their dirty, foul sheets. Don't believe these newspapers. They're liars, thieves, and scoundrels. Doc ends up winning the primary by a thousand votes and change. And sure enough, when November comes around, 
McKinley gets re-elected, and Doc rides the wave to his fourth term as mayor of Minneapolis. But this time, he's not going to settle for a little light corruption. He's going to take everything he can possibly get his hands on. So when Doc takes office on January 7th, 1901, he turns the police department into the best tool for organized crime the state had ever seen. He fires half the officers pretty much immediately and replaces them with his buddies. He offers the remaining jobs to anyone who will bribe him for him. On top of that, he appoints his little brother Fred Ames chief of police. Honestly, if I was going to list all of the crimes the police department pulled off in the next year and a half, we'd be here for hours. So let's zoom in on three of the big rackets they were running. Brothel extortion, burglary, and gambling. We'll start with the brothels. The red light district was incredibly profitable in early 20th century Minneapolis. Sex work was technically illegal, but it was also a huge moneymaker, so the city tolerated it. They made madams pay $100 a month in fines, but in reality, they were really more like licensing fees. Add up all the madams in the city, and that's a lot of money. Doc starts taking his own cut of it. He also starts letting brothels operate outside the red light district, as long as they pay him protection money. Then there's the petty extortion. They were forcing sex workers to buy fake health certificates, presents for police officers, and even tickets to the police baseball league. Of course, Doc also had even less subtle ways of making money. Like I mentioned before, burglary was huge. This one time, the chief of detectives helped some thieves steal a diamond, then stole the diamond from them, like in the Italian job. Another time, two of Ames' cops bribed an employee at the Pabst Brewing Company and cleaned out the safe. Yeah, the cops robbed PBR. But the gambling racket probably made the most money of all. Doc installed slot machines in a bunch of bars in town, whether the owners wanted them or not, and he pocketed the winnings. From these alone, he was probably making around $15,000 a year. That's $500,000 in today's money. Illegal gambling was the bread and butter of Doc's operation. And that brings us to one of the biggest cons in Minneapolis, the Big Mitt. So here's how you pull off a Big Mitt. You find a sucker at the train station, somebody who's just arrived from out of town and looks like they have some money burning a hole in their pocket. You lure them to an underground poker game, packed with people in on the scheme. Everybody seems pretty bad at poker, so the sucker loosens up and starts making bigger and bigger bets. They're cleaning up. And that's when you deal them the big mitt, a hand they'd have to be an idiot not to go all in on. A full house, a flush, something like that. If you're lucky, they put their whole check onto the table, only to be shocked when one of the other players turns over a four of a kind. And just as the sucker realizes they've lost all their money, you have a cop burst in. At this point, the sucker's starting to freak out. They realize they got conned, so they go to the cop and demand he arrest the other gamblers. 
And the cop says, do you have a license to gamble in Minneapolis? And the sucker says, no, officer, I just got here. And the cop says, then this game is illegal. So either I can arrest you all or you can cut your losses, get out of town right now and avoid jail. Sometimes the cop would even bring the sucker to the train station. Then they'd go back and split the winnings with the con men, the mayor, and the police chief. Supposedly, these cons made so much money, criminals came from all over the country just to run them. In just one week in November 1901, one gang made the modern equivalent of $100,000 on Big Mitt games and handed over 20000 of that to Ames and his buddies. How can I possibly have those numbers, you ask? Well, now we get to the part of the story where Doc's luck runs out. So this whole conspiracy unravels absurdly fast. It's not even a year and a half after Doc got elected, and he's getting investigated by a Hennepin County grand jury. In April 1902, this guy Hovey C. Clark just happens to get chosen for jury selection. He's a lumber guy from an old New England family, and boy does he look it. Think robber baron chic. Old white dude, balding, three-piece suit. In one of the pictures I've seen, he's holding what's probably a pair of glasses, but I prefer to think is a monocle. Anyways, this dude who looks like the Monopoly man has been following the corruption in Minneapolis. He says to himself, this whole Doc Ames business has gone far enough and something's got to be done about it. And he realizes that since the county is insulated from Doc's power over the city, he's the guy to do it. So Hovey Clark basically becomes grand jury Batman and he goes after Doc with a vengeance. First, he hires these local private eyes to investigate the Ames administration with his own money. Then he hires a second group of private eyes from out of town because he figures the first group are probably all in cahoots with Ames anyway. Hovey Clark is not a man to do things by half measures. The private eyes find some local con men who Ames had double-crossed and thrown in jail, and they're willing to talk. They hand over a key piece of evidence, a single piece of paper called the Big Mitt Ledger. It's a handwritten receipt that shows how much money these guys made from Big Mitt cons and all of the people in city government they were paying off to stay afloat. Again, we're talking about the equivalent of $100,000 in from the suckers and $20,000 out to the Ames gang. A week. Between the witnesses and the ledger, the grand jury has everything they need to start going after the Ames gang. On May 16th, 1902, they arrest Fred Ames and two other cops on bribery charges. As you can imagine, Doc doesn't take this very well. He tells a local newspaper... It is a conspiracy, a deliberate, cold-blooded plot conceived in the office of the sheriff and extending through all sorts of ramifications to the district court. I know definitively that Hobie Clark told the defendant in this case that if he were to go before the grand jury and testify in such a manner as to indict Mayor Ames, there would be a comfortable sum of money placed in the bank to his credit. Unsurprisingly, the conspiracy theories don't really help. At the first trial, Fred Ames gets acquitted but one of the cops decides to turn state's evidence and rat on the rest of the gang. It's only a matter of time before more indictments come down on pretty much everybody. With the writing on the wall, Doc decides to get the hell out of Dodge. He finally gets arraigned for bribery on June 17, 1902, 
he skips town and heads for Indiana sometime in the next few weeks. And this brings us back to Doc Ames sitting ashen in the smoking room of an overnight train headed east, an unlit cigar in his mouth, numb. The next year is, to put it frankly, messy as hell. The mayor's halfway across the country, the police chief's facing a bunch of felonies, and there's an election coming up. Doc appoints an acting mayor, which he definitely has no legal authority to do. Then that guy leaves town. So the city attorney appoints a new acting mayor, but then there are questions about whose orders the police are supposed to be following. It's a mess. Meanwhile, the Ames gang is getting folded up by the grand jury. At the end of it all, there'd be 49 indictments and five convictions. Fred Ames was one of them. He made it out of that first trial unscathed, but the next series of indictments pinned him with six and a half years of prison time. Doc, on the other hand, is literally just hanging out in Indiana, saying he's gotten sick and isn't in good enough health to travel home. He's not quite a fugitive, but he's not not a fugitive, if you know what I mean. He hasn't shown up for any of his court dates, but they haven't issued a warrant for his arrest either. It's kind of mind-boggling now, but extradition between states is really expensive at the time. And everybody figures he's gonna have to come back to Minneapolis sooner or later anyway. But Indiana isn't doing him any favors either. He tries to get a temporary medical license, but gets turned down because the Indiana Medical Board has been following the whole situation back in Minnesota. He sees a patient anyway and gets in trouble for practicing medicine without a license. So he skips town again to Louisville, Kentucky. And then again to Springfield, Massachusetts. And then to Hancock, New Hampshire. Somewhere in there, the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office decides they are going to arrest this dude after all. And there's this bizarre game of cat and mouse up and down the East Coast. Then the story really blows up across the country. Enter Lincoln Steffens, reporter extraordinaire. He's this handsome journalist in his mid-30s who's been documenting municipal corruption around the country. Basically, he's the prototype for what we now call an investigative journalist. In October 1902, he releases this piece called Tweed Days in St. Louis. It's widely acknowledged as the first muckracking article of all time. And in January 1903, he drops the follow-up a damning indictment of the Ames administration, called The Shame of Minneapolis. Even now, more than a hundred years later, it's a wild read. The front page is mostly taken up by this huge facsimile of the Big Mitt Ledger, the first time anyone had seen it other than the grand jury. The article spreads across the country like wildfire, and Doc Ames is an overnight celebrity. As you might imagine, this makes it pretty hard for him to stay hidden and a sheriff shows up in New Hampshire with a warrant for his arrest. At first, Doc says he's still too sick to travel. And he does clearly have some health issues, but at this point, the cops are like, dude, you've moved like five times in the last year. You're not too sick to travel. So he gives up and goes with him back to Minneapolis. He arrives on March 17, 1903, to a massive crowd of onlookers. The trial starts on May 1st. He's indicted on no less than nine counts of bribery, 
conspiracy, and extortion. The prosecution has a rock-solid case. At least seven witnesses, including several former members of the gang, along with the big mitt ledger. But Doc doesn't plead guilty. He doesn't plead not guilty. He pleads insane. He lists about a million health issues he's supposedly had over the course of his life. Liver inflammation, memory loss, chronic diarrhea, and alcoholism, for starters. He plays up injuries he has from his military service. His lawyers basically argue that he's so mentally and physically ill, he shouldn't be held responsible for anything he did while in office. And besides, everyone loves him. Their closing argument is hilarious. Here's my favorite part. The state has said that a verdict of not guilty will carry joy to the criminal classes. Ask the poor classes. Ask the crippled railroad boys. Ask in the huts of the poor where this old man has entered like an angel of mercy to bless them. Ask the poor. Ask the rich. Ask the old fast-falling veterans of 65. Ask the past 40 years of this man's life who he is. And you have the answer with no words from me. And when the county attorney says that a verdict of not guilty will bring joy to the criminals, let me tell you that it will bring joy and tears of joy to the thousands in this city to whom he has been an angel of mercy. Ask the crippled railroad boys. Ask them, they'll tell you. Anyway, it super doesn't work. He gets sentenced to six years of hard labor at Stillwater Prison. Doc Ames is headed up the river. But then the conviction gets overturned on a technicality. And he gets tried again, and the jury is deadlocked. It gets declared a mistrial. And then he gets tried a third time, and the jury is deadlocked. It gets declared a mistrial. And at this point, what the prosecutors realize is that pretty much any jury they find in Hennepin County is gonna have somebody who loves Doc Ames on it. So eventually, impossibly, Somehow, Doc Ames walks, free as a bird. And he just goes back to being a doctor, quietly showing up to his office, seeing patients. No more trials, no more scandals, no more politics. He works up until the day he dies. Eight years later, just shy of 70, on November 16, 1911 peacefully, in his sleep. It's crazy to me to think of how quiet his last few years must have felt. This is a guy who fought in two wars, ran for office 17 times, and turned the Minneapolis Police Department into a Hall of Fame organized crime ring. And at the end, he's just kind of there. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what my takeaways from this whole story are. The obvious one is how much damage one corrupt politician can do. Seasonal laborers, sex workers, business owners, a lot of people suffered under Doc Ames' rule. And the consequences rippled out from there. It took years for the city government to put itself back together. As Eric Rivenis, the historian I talked to earlier, puts it, It just goes to show, you know, What happens when a narcissistic, pompous person is able to 
rally his troops and kind of run unimpeded uh, for a, a period of time. And that brings me to another thing I haven't been able to get out of my head. One of the reasons Doc didn't get even further in his scheming was that in 1900, Minneapolis had a weak mayor system. Basically, at the time, the city council had way more power than the mayor, who mostly just had official control over the police department. Minneapolis moved away from that system in 2021, when a strong mayor amendment passed in a super contentious election. Today, the mayor of Minneapolis doesn't just have control over the police department. They control pretty much the whole city government. Advocates of the strong mayor system say it'll make things more efficient, that a weak mayor system is confusing and dodges accountability. On the other hand, critics of the strong mayor system say it's less democratic and makes it easier to buy elections. In 2021, local news outlet Wedge Live described the strong mayor amendment as a power grab, saying, Our city council gives every corner of Minneapolis equal representation, but a mayor is elected disproportionately by the whitest, wealthiest parts of the city. It's also worth mentioning that in a citywide campaign, a mayoral winner is often dependent on the city's wealthiest donors. It does make you wonder, if Ames was able to get away with so much back then, what could he get away with now? Before I go, let me leave you with a little epilogue. It turns out there's still members of the Ames family in Minneapolis, and some of them are really interested in continuing to excavate the history of their great-great-grandparents. Here's Deidre Hammond, who's done a lot of that work over the last few years. My father is Andrew Ames. His father was Douglas Agamemnon Ames. And then his father was Fred Ames, or Frederick Ames. And then his father was um, A.E. Ames, Alfred Elisha Ames. I asked her how it felt to have such a complicated family story. I can't believe I related, you know, to that. But I think it's kind of, I don't know, I say kind of cool because I'm actually part of local history. She's really interested in contributing to that history and to solving one mystery in particular. There's been a lot of ink spilled about Doc's time as mayor, but no one knows where his personal records went. And Deidre would love to find him. Is there a letter somewhere or an envelope in a floorboard? My dad and I did that when I was young. When they rebuilt um, part of the house, we put a letter in a sandwich bag, put it in the floorboard, sealed it up, you know, and then put the carpet on and everything. And so there's a letter in the floorboard. He goes, that's what families did. And I'm thinking, okay. So Alfred, Elijah, and Fred and Doc, their homes were built. They weren't just purchased. Where's the details? There's got to be. Somebody had to have a diary. For now, the location of Doc's papers remains a mystery. But I like imagining that one day... Deidre will pry open a crawl space in a dusty old house, and we'll know even more about the shame of Minneapolis. Until then, for KFAI's Mini Culture, I'm Tony Williams. Remember me, from your
Support for Mini Culture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season 7 of the Mini Culture Podcast is edited and executive produced by Julie Sensulo. New episodes coming soon, so subscribe to Mini Culture wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, John Gibertatios, and thanks for listening. Thank you.